Hello, and welcome back to Longshot Ballerinas, a podcast for adults pursuing excellence in ballet. This week for our fifth episode, I am very happy to welcome our very first guest, Mr. Matt Banger. Matt is a multidisciplined, multi-talented creative with a degree in audio engineering from Columbia College in Chicago, Illinois. With over two decades in the arts realm, he has professional experience as a sound designer, mixer, and composer in Los Angeles, California. He is an accomplished singer-songwriter and music producer, and newly minted film director and cinematographer working with corporate clients and ad agencies. He also holds the illustrious title of ballet boyfriend, specifically my ballet boyfriend. So Matt, thanks for joining me this week on Longshot Ballerinas. I know you're not a ballerina, but um, he has a lot of amazing things to say and thoughts on arts in general. Um, as you heard from his little bio, he has a lot of experience in, uh, in different disciplines. Uh, so Matt, you want to say hi to the people? Hi, people. <laughs> We're also both pretty awkward, so I think it's going to... One of us more than I, I think it's going to amplify... Um but anyways, we're, we're just going to talk about creating art today. And I think that this is something that um, adults don't get to hear from kind of other adults. I mean, we're both in our 30s. We both have, you know, multiple career paths in our lives. Um, I am also a former musician. So uh, yeah, we're going to have this talk about creating art. So Matt, I'd like to ask you first about um, what you're doing right now. I think the present is is the most top of mind. So tell us a little bit about your, uh, your film work. Uh, right now, I'd like to kind of consider myself a filmmaker in training. So um, I think sort of long-term about where I'm going and spend most of my time working on the skill sets that I need to get there and doing small projects, paid and otherwise, to uh, hone my skills. Now, it's important to note that um, how many months have you been doing this now? <laughs> oh, a couple of years. I think I'm a little over two years. Are in. you at two now? Yeah. yeah. So this is pretty new for him. So um... there are a lot of transferable skills, though, from being a musician and engineer and uh, or audio engineer. So it's it's a quick rise. I was also a photographer, so cinematography is coming fairly quickly to me. Um, yeah, there's just a million different facets of filmmaking. So I'm trying to get through each one to the point of competency and get to a point where I can work with other people and speak their language. And yeah, would you say that that's kind of what um, draws you to film? Is it is a mashup of all the things that you've done in your past? <laughs> Yeah, Conveniently. it's, it's uh, I mean, I, I like to make videos and stuff when I was a kid, but the the coolest thing about it is that it is almost all art forms combined. It's, you know, it's music, it's choreography, it's, um, you know, it's editing, it's photography, it's everything. It's, um, there's bits of architecture, you need to know how rooms are laid out, you need to know about lighting, and there's just physics elements and all kinds of stuff it's it's super technical it's super creative it's the perfect blend of all these things that i enjoy and would you say that you have you always kind of had it in the back of your mind that that's something you wanted to try you mentioned that you made films as you were you know like as a kid i think we all kind of experimented with our parents video cameras and doing plays and i know my family and i did that or or um you know, is it something that came to you like a little bit later? What what exactly got you into mm. film? 
I originally, like when I was going to school, going to college, I thought I wanted to do audio for Pixar, like animated type films. Mm-hmm. And since that, like I, I started along that path and I went to LA and I was an audio engineer for, for a period of time. And then I started composing and got more back into music and some things happened in my life back home. And so I moved, I moved back and I was in this place where I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I decided to follow music and it took me on a, a bit of a tangent for about five, seven years. And I yes. just I just became a, a singer songwriter and music producer for a while, and which I had always done, but not professionally, and never really thought I would do it professionally. It was just something for fun. From there, seeing that through and ultimately getting burned out, I got back to a place of remembering my love for film and all the reasons I loved it. And so I left music for a while to return to it. I do recall being impressed when, um, so I should, I should preface this for all of you listening, Matt and I met at an open mic <laughs> in Chicago, I think the second month I moved here. Um, at the time, I was not interested in seeing anybody, so we became music friends first, and we, we played some open mic, some covers, some sad music, and um, just kind of bonded over that. But I do remember um, your vast knowledge of movies. And every time you'd ask me if I had seen a movie, I would have to say no, because I had seen, I think, I think pretty much no movies. I'm just convinced that I had seen nothing till I met you, which is not exactly true, but that's interesting to like, um, I know for me, I am always coming back to ballet. I always like go away from it and I get mad at it sometimes or it gets mad at me and then I dump it. And then, and then eventually we're, we, we make up and, and we get back together. So, so, um, well, but, I'm actually curious, does ballet give you an emotional outlet? Cause you're saying I, I, I've seen so many movies and you were kind of impressed or intimidated or whatever you were by that. And <laughs> both, <laughs> both. And like for me, uh, the way I processed emotions as a kid, good or not, it was through art, was through, through music, through, um, particularly when I was younger, it was rock music. And then it was movies and just tons of movies and particularly really sad movies. And <laughs> uh, do you feel like there's like a catharsis in consuming a ballet? Do you have like these, Ooh. these hair standing up moments? Like watching, watching yeah, a ballet? Watching or performing, I would say in performing or listening to music or um, in making films or consuming them, I get a processing of emotion that I don't always get from just journaling or thinking. Mm -hmm. I think so. Um, I don't, I'm not sure. I know as a kid, it was a really comfortable place for me to be in ballet. One, because I was always like pretty much taller than every, I was kind of just growing faster than everyone else was. So I was usually in the back. Um, And so it, and then, you know, we didn't have to talk. I was a pretty shy kid and my listeners know that I have multiple neurodivergencies so I think it just it really it allowed me to like move my body I didn't have to you know you weren't you were encouraged to stand um at one place but everything was about moving and I I'm not sure if I have any emotional memories like from it from that point but then as I got older um especially if I took a lot of time off of dance or I stopped performing when I was about 17 16 17 and um Kind of after that, if I would go to another Nutcracker, I remember um, really when I started to get back into dance when I came to Chicago, um, my mom and I went to the Joffrey Ballet to their um, Nutcracker and I pretty much held it together until it hit flowers and then I was just like bawling like a baby <laughs> because it was like I had this, it's like someone ripped off this band-aid on my soul and and um, I just like felt so much and I that I guess was cathartic because I think I didn't really 
realize how much I missed the performing of it. I had been taking classes, you know, on and off, kind of just open classes here and there when I was in LA. And um, I think I'd always kind of like kept up an interest, but that was the point where I was like, whoa, wow, that's a lot lot of feelings. So probably, probably that is what that means is that I, um, because I didn't have that particular outlet of the performance of dance, I, yeah, it took kind of seeing that again of, uh, to remember like what it actually did for me. So that's very, oh, learning something about myself today. Sort of a silent catharsis. You you didn't even know it was there until you you missed it. Probably that, that makes that, that tracks with my personality and um, how I was as a kid. So yeah. Oh, thank you for that question. (laughs) I'm going to turn you into the the interview right now. (laughs) Um, so to backtrack a little bit, because you glossed over it for a second, but this wasn't the question, um, you have quite the music experience. Um, I met you at the end of your kind of foray into professional rock stardom, but, um, let's talk a little <laughs> hardly, bit about your, your band. You had a band. Hardly stardom you and hardly the end. still listen to it. And I'll tell you, it's called Aviation and the War. And um, if you like, uh, what genre would you call yourself? Like era, in, what would in, you compare yourself indie to? Indie alternative. Indie alternative. Manchester um, Orchestra or Thrice or yeah. if you have to go popular, you go like, you know, like Coldplay, but sad. Coldplay, <laughs> but sad. More sad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or um, more angry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you should really check out their music. It's quite good. There's guitars. There's it's, drums. It's quite good. It's, it's quite good. It's really good. And I'm kind of a music snob, so... Um, secrets about me as I am very judgy when it comes to music so uh yeah aviation the war and then you had some kind of solo work too and I met you and you were you were recording um I guess you're recording some covers and do you have anything is this I did put out a Lizzo cover I'm sure you can link to it in the show notes I will link to Um, it where is it somewhere on soundcloud or something yeah yeah it's under my name i'll put SoundCloud. it on there because it's actually quite good the bird likes it spitfire my parrot loves to listen to it i think because it has bird chirps in it but <laughs> it always calms him down yeah. anyway so yeah he has had i mean we could talk probably for hours about the intricacies of of writing and recording your own your own album would you say that by the end of it you were proud of what you made yeah i, w- I would say so with the with the first album that we made i, I remember being very proud of that. And then as that got positive attention and I started working on music full time, we started putting out singles. And I remember by the end of like the fourth one being like, these aren't as good as I would like them mm. to be. And the the level of pride I had for the thing, I think because I was rushing to put these things out because it was now the pressure to be the musician or whatever. It wasn't just something that I was doing because I loved to do it because it was now like my quote unquote career. Mm-hmm. I got to a point where I was like, this isn't representing the level of quality I want to put out or the emotions that I want to be. I'm not hitting that that emotional bar that I want to. Do you think that's because you were burnt out or yeah, was yeah, there I was, something I was burning myself out, was, giving hmm. myself deadlines. I was saying we were going to put out a song in a month for, oh, for a yeah. little bit there. And there was just something that happened. And I was distancing myself from the original catharsis that I was talking about before. And so I kind of hung it up for a while because of that. Hmm. Yeah, I had a similar um, situation myself after after undergrad, where I sort of got everything I wanted out of music at the time, and it wasn't challenging enough for me. I think I was too, mm-hmm. not to toot my own horn, but I was too good at what I was doing at the time to, um, I was passing for a lot, har- a lot higher leveling caliber of musician than 
probably really was, but everybody around me was telling me I was great. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I like I like a challenge. And for me, dance has always been the mm. can't quite get there. <laughs> don't yeah. quite have the body for it. Don't quite have, you know, I'm sort of come up short on a lot of things. And so I think that's partly why I come back to it all the well, time. Would you a, say film is? Well, this is a thing in flow, mm. what you were just talking about, where it's not challenging enough. So you, you don't get into flow and you don't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, either something is slightly too challenging or it's not challenging enough. And that prevents you from getting into flow that that state that you want to be in to, to feel like, you know, like you've, you're just losing time in the thing that you're doing because you love it so much. And it's that perfect level of just out of my range of ability that you want. And if the things that you were doing were already in the range of your ability, you were probably just kind of bored. Yeah. And yeah. for me, it was more, I was just burned out trying to do everything. So would you say you're more um, of an internally motivated person or more externally motivated when you're creating? I would say I am, when I'm creating well, I'm 100% internally motivated. And when I'm creating terribly, historically, I'm externally motivated. <laughs> when when I give myself these like external deadlines or people are putting pressure on me to, to make something, most often I make my best stuff when I am doing it because I want to and because I want to get better and I want to see what I can do. Yeah. Do you consider art as art for aesthetic pleasure only or do you, when you create art, are you thinking of it as a form of communication? Both, for sure. I think art is for, art is therapeutic first and foremost. Mm-hmm. It's it's how we relate to people and it's how we process things in our lives. Art is how, art is communication when you're doing something that's say like supporting a movement, which is not something I ever did, but like it can be communication. And a lot of the times art's just like a mood and aesthetics and I'm trying to process this as I as I say it, but art is so often just a feeling. And when people can be a feeling and communicating something, I think that's when you get the best art. Hmm. I'm thinking of um, the way that art, um, that dance is going these days, and we've talked about this before, um, is uh, we sort of have the old guard, which is... Um, Storybook ballets, which have a very clear, it's usually a fairy tale that's been presented. You know, you've seen the Nutcracker, you've seen the Swan Lake. It's got a a very clear storyline. There may not be any talking. You may not be able to understand the mime, but you get the idea. And that's, you know, that's the old way of doing ballet. And then you have kind of um, the new way of doing ballet. Well, you had the intermediary uh, neoclassical ballets, you know, started by George Balanchine, where he, um, they were storyless ballets, but they always had a story. (laughs) They always had like a mood, a feeling, um, you, they definitely didn't exist. And some of them had more of a story, you know, such as um, Apollo, or um, there are definitely some that were based on, I don't want to say literature, but works of art, you know, coming from before. And then nowadays, you kind of get a little bit more of a crossover into contemporary dance, contemporary ballet, where you, you'll go, and if I don't know what I'm looking at, I don't know what I'm looking at until I read the program. And then it might be a paragraph or a sentence or a, um, there will be something that I could not have possibly figured out unless I read what the artist was intending. And I think that can happen with music. It can happen with um, visual art. We go to the Art Institute frequently enough um, to see things that are there. And uh, this is always, I always um, fight myself on this one as to, is that the, I'm going to have a whole episode on this, but is that the end of 
ballet is 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 art uh, or let me let me go back to the original question um do you consider art as art alone, aesthetic pleasure only, or art as a form of communication? And if the latter, how important is it to you that a viewer understands the message you're intending to convey? And are you okay with communicating something with the risk, taking on the risk that maybe your audience will not interpret it in the way that you intended it? How do you feel about that? So Rick Rubin was just talking about this on, on something I was listening to the other day, where someone will bring him some lyrics and they'll be talking about, you know, are these lyrics any good? And, um, he'll say, this is what I interpreted it as. And they'll either say, no, that's not what I meant at all. Or yes, that's what I meant. Mm -hmm. But they might say, no, that's not what I meant, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. The way you interpret it is, is also okay. I don't mind that that's been interpreted another way. And they, or they, they might say, uh, no, that's not it. We have to change it. Or they might say, yes, that's what I meant. Great that you got it. And, any of those are fine. It's really up to the artist to say whether that's okay or not. Bonavere's lyrics are often very abstract, and he says that people can take away whatever they need from something. That's a totally valid approach as well. So how do you? But sorry, I kind of meandered into no, that. No, that's but, okay. But specifically for you, what do? You, how do you feel about that? How do I feel about Especially it? Especially with film being so like you know you can make like an art film mm. where it's kind of like I'm not an art film guy. No, usually, I know you're not. But, so um, even just like music, people have said they've taken away things from from lyrics that I've written that weren't necessarily there, and I think I'm okay with it. Mm. I think that as long as you you get some like cathartic release, like I said, from mm -hmm. the thing that I put out, then that's awesome. I think that people relating to each other. You can have different experiences that have the same core emotion. You know, you can have mm -hmm. the same trauma from two different things that happened to you. You can have the same whatever it is. And I think if you can find a place to relate, and if that's music, if that's dance, if that's films, that's that's okay. Good. Okay. I mean, that's <laughs> that's my view on it. I think uh, a lot of people want to be understood exactly as they've right. intended and i don't think i've ever been understood that well so for me it's not that big of a deal <laughs> i suppose yeah that that's probably the healthiest way to look at it anyways but and then i i think you know that would fall upon the artist to ensure that you know to i guess show your art to as many people as possible and if and if you know 50% of them are are thinking something else then i guess you're you're adjusting it but then is that making art for others or is that making art for yourself and which one is yeah. Which one is um, which one is not better? But actually, this this leads me to another question. Are you going to talk about like should you make art for others or for yourself? Because I really think that the audience of one is maybe the most important thing in art is making something for like suppose a stadium, oh, oh, oh. here we go, a stadium of views, or mm -hmm. just for you and what your preferences are. But also, that requires good taste. If you have shit taste and you make something for yourself, you need Correct. to figure that out. Correct. Because it's very easy. We talk about this a lot. It's very easy to um, self-aggrandize. And this, my next question would be, um, and I have strong feelings about this, but you can go first because I'm interviewing you. Do you believe that, and this is specifically for, for performance art, do you believe that art should always have some aspect or focus on entertainment to be successful? Or do you believe that artists can make art only for themselves and still see it reach wide audiences? Why or why not? Oh, it depends. Should you consider your audience when you are making art to be seen? 
to be consumed because obviously I can paint a painting I can finger paint and it could be terrible and I love it and I put it on my wall great but if I'm making something that's a consumable someone's going to pay money to come and see my dance or my film or my whether this theater. is you or this is someone else's job it's the editor's job or the producer's job to make sure that something is commercially viable I think that when you make something when you go through the writing phase of something, you can't be thinking about whether or not people are going to love this. You need to be in your own space. Do I like this? Every step of the way, do I like this? And then you get to a certain point in the process. Someone else needs to look at that or you later, as if you're collaborating with yourself, need to look at it and go, is this a commercially viable is like the the shitty way of putting it. But can I show this to other people and will they buy this? Will they go see this? Will they consume this and will they like it? And there's a certain point in the process where you can run it through that filter and it might make it better. It usually makes it better. Yes. And I tend to agree with you. And I think I, as I'm hearing you explain it in the, you know, through the lens of film is such a really specific beast, especially now where we kind of are getting, you know, everything is a huge, everything costs a lot of money. And everything needs to make a lot of money for more things to be made. So we get all these Marvel movies, and we talk about this a lot. We we go see movies um, in the summertime when they're coming out, and and it's kind of exhausting. And my brain just wants to see things that are unique. And um, we were both really blown away by the Woman King. We saw that in theaters, and I mean, I just have to say, if you haven't seen it yet, please watch that movie. It is. I think as close to like a perfect movie I've seen in a really long time from original story to amazing acting to, you know, everything, everything is perfect. And that was such like a wonderful gem. Like I walked out feeling like I had an experience. I learned something. I, you know, it, it was not, okay, you know, here comes another superhero and not that there's nothing, you know, a lot of those movies are super entertaining. But I think those are specifically made for that commercial reasoning and to make money. They are not, it is the, the Woman King was not made to make a bunch of money. It was to tell this incredible story of these incredible warriors and, you know, shine light on on a a tale that is not, you know, half of it's CGI and half of it is, you know, those things, those are tools and they have their place. But I think somebody saw that story and was like, we have to show this to people because it means something. And then they made it into this beautiful work of art. You know, like it had some bones already there that were that were great. And I think sometimes uh, for dance specifically, um, it becomes a little bit about what the choreographer has to say versus is the thing they want to say actually worth saying? Mm. Or is that does that exist already in so many different forms that it just becomes kind of a stereotype, you know, like there's always going to be a breakup dance, just like there's always going to be a breakup song, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think for dance specifically, it already has such a hard time. um, And for classical dance, it's already has a horrible time kind of keeping the attention of the current generations and um, the public and, Mm -hmm even getting funding so i do you think dance the message at all has changed so in songwriting Mm -hmm. for thousands of years or hundreds of years every song was about god and Mm -hmm. then over the last century it's become that every song is about love Mm -hmm. and do you think that's happened with dance at all where the topics have changed yeah for sure definitely how so um 
Well, first it was for, you know, it was for the elite and it was a um, primarily a mechanism to not only tell stories, but to also show um, bits of the world to uh, Europeans. Do you, do you feel like the story is secondary now? The story is secondary. Has it always been? No, it has okay. not do always you, been. Do you think that's a good thing? I, As someone who goes to see a ballet mm-hmm. and goes, okay, I have to read this to really understand what's going on on stage. Whereas you go to a movie and the story is everything. Yep. Um, you can see how it would over time, as people's attentions get shorter and stuff, it would over time turn into this thing where it's more about people's emotions as they dance and not necessarily about the overall story arc. Do you think that it's okay that things have moved away from... I think that it is okay. I think that it is losing... I think it's losing the very fabric of what ballet was. And, you know, things morph and change and um, meld together, especially with movement, since it is just... It's just your body. And whether you're performing, you know, codified um, dance form or not... I, I'm not sure I'm not sure if it I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily, but I think it does water down the original intent of the dance form. Do you think that it was do you think Balachine was seen for watering things down or changing things no, radically? He was he well well you're right. Yes. He changed things radically because he, all of a sudden he that this was his whole purpose was he decided to strip off all of the fluff in the costumes and have them basically in practice clothes because he believed that movement to music was the basis of ballet and that even though these weren't storybook ballets, I'm I can't remember the exact quote, but um but he would say things like, um there isn't a story, but there's always, or, or there isn't, there isn't meaning, but there's always a story. Or I, I might be conflating the two, but um, basically, like one of his most famous works, which is Serenade, the characters, for lack of a better word, are all telling a story. You have the, um, you have the waltz girl, and then you have the dark angel, and then you have the Russian girl, and they all have qualities of that, and they're telling some kind of a story. If you watch Serenade, everybody cries when they watch this ballet because it is just like, even if you don't know what you're looking at, it's just beautiful, and the music, the Tchaikovsky is beautiful too, but but you couldn't probably tell me what the story was when you when you finish it. You know something happened, and you felt something. It's like a Bon Iver song, where mm-hmm. they can communicate something without it being explicit. You can tell that there's relationships going on on stage. And the same thing with, you could say that about nearly all of his ballets. So in a way, he's the one who started this. He is the one that started away it. Or from I'm sure there were other people experimenting, but he's the one that ballets. made it famous and um, who... So. Yeah, decided to just have ballet in its purest form, I think was the idea, was it, so my, dance can be in practice clothes. It doesn't yeah. need all of the pomp and circumstance of a full-length Sleeping Beauty or Nutcracker ballet. So this is someone who arguably took ballet and took it to a new place that yeah. everyone loves, and or most people mm-hmm. enjoy. And the question then becomes, at what point does changing things moving forward actually progress ballet and not detract from it? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that remains to be seen, especially in our age of social media and kind of um, dances become a lot about tricks 
about a lot of there's a lot of acrobatic and gymnastic elements that have come into um, all forms of dance and so it becomes more about how many turns can you do they're very cool but do they have any place in art you yeah. know what are you communicating with 12 pirouettes it's tough too though because maybe in earlier days of ballet what you do now that's normal was people at their peak performance yeah and so mm -hmm. look at other sports look at yes um, you know you can look at any skateboarding or i mean a, a double back flick flip is like the norm in so many right, right. different action sports now yeah or, or worse and it would have so, shocked you 10 years ago but right. yeah but now it's it's just normal and standard and the way standard. training happens for people you're trained into being able to do things at a different level than you were you know decades ago so it becomes what is classic and what is progressive and where's that line and does it still emote if you're just doing things for athletic sake mm-hmm yeah, I don't, I don't really know where we're going with it, but it, it's it's an interesting question. I think the beauty of it is it no matter what you do, no matter how much you spend, no matter how much effort, no matter how many, how many people you have in your army to make this thing, it comes down to can you make people feel something? Mm -hmm. And it, you can look at Bo Burnham's special on Netflix where he made the entire thing basically by himself, getting a higher rating and more viewership and more people emoting and crying or laughing or whatever it is than a lot of movies that cost hundreds of millions of dollars and it just comes down to can you make people feel something whatever tools you have at your disposal it doesn't really matter yeah but going back to uh, the cgi thing it's like if you look at a movie like top gun you have this thing where they say they did the entire thing practically but really they shot it all and then they're adding in cgi elements based on what was shot so when you're shooting things that say let's say you shoot one plane and then you add in three more you have this practical basis to be able to know where the light is coming from and how to animate that so mm -hmm. it looks real mm -hmm. whereas if you do something on a green screen and there's no real motivation for where the light is coming from it's very very hard to make that look believable to us and so you look at a lot of marvel movies that have come out lately and they're all soft lit green screen and they mm -hmm. feel very fake and emotionless and not real and it's because they're not and when you can take something like top gun did shoot something real like a plane flying by and then you turn that into three or four planes and then one of those planes you change that it's now a russian plane and whatever you do to it you are able to take a real thing and make it bigger and tell your story mm -hmm. rather than take something that doesn't exist and try to sell it as real so that really just comes down to, like, again, does it make you feel? And often when things aren't believable, they don't make you feel. Everything in film is fake, but to make it feel real, you don't want to give people more fakeness than <laughs> they... Keep the ratios. Yeah, like, yeah. it's it's already not a real story, and people are reading lines. And when you give people something that's clearly not in the world of the movie that you're showing them, it takes them out of the story. I was just thinking of the um, the Rogue One Star Wars movie, and I, to be honest, I only saw it, I think I only saw it once, but I remember the scene where they're, spoiler alert if you haven't watched this movie, but um, at the very end when they're, basically they're all about to die. They're about to die. They know they're going to die, and they're just standing on this beach watching the, is the planet colliding into it? Something big is happening, and and obviously there's not a planet colliding into this other planet. Like I know this, but they did such a good job of like the whole movie just focused on the characters. And it was about, um, I don't even remember what the characters names were. I vaguely remember what they look like, but I do remember feeling 
like so I felt like I was going to die with them right there. Like I really did. I remember sitting there and I, I have a, yeah, I have a pretty sensitive, um, sense of if I'm into a movie, I'm hundred percent into it. If one thing pulls me out, then I, I'm bored and miserable and just critiquing the thing the rest of the time. So that I have that particular scene just kind of like burned in my head and they are, they're kind of like on probably a real beach. They look like they're standing in sand, you know, they're like on a beach and then they've added stuff in the background, of course, planets and whatever's going on. And, um, and I think that's like such a, it's such a good example of using your tools wisely. Mm-hmm. And I think I can almost, this is a stretch, but I can equate, you know, using CGI sparingly with using tricks in dance sparingly. 100%. As you need them as accent. It's like trying to, you can't just dump like a whole bottle of saffron threads into a, a meal. And yeah, sure, it's expensive. Saffron's expensive. It's delicious. It's fragrant and floral. And But if you put the whole thing in your soup, it's not going to taste good and it's going to be weird. Everything <laughs> has to be motivated. In any yes, art that you do, right. it's like, I don't, don't I don't want the song to start with a guitar solo, have a guitar solo in the middle and another one at the end that makes no sense, even if you're the best guitar player in the world. Mm-hmm. It's all about when does that thing have the impact that you want it to have. Yeah. And so if... Do you in- think it's possible to teach people those things? We, we talk about like taste a lot and um, how important that is to be able to like tell when something needs it and when doesn't and I'm always curious to know you know I it it's sort of like um it's sort of like ear training you can train someone to have good ears when they're a very small child apparently this is a thing but after that if they don't come by it naturally it's just it's not a you can teach them about intervals you can teach them to sightseeing you can teach them lots of things it's perfect pitch basically if you don't develop perfect pitch if you aren't taught it by the age of six you can't really develop it so there's there's certain things that like because i learned piano at a very young age i have a better sense of of melody than i than i would have had i not Mm -hmm. but really when what you're talking about is like where does taste come from and do does everyone have it and the answer is probably not I think a lot of people have terrible taste and the only way to train it is your inputs. It's you curate the things that you take in so that your outputs are things that you like. So Mm -hmm. you like as a uh, dancer, if you take in certain ballets, certain dancers that you love, you're more likely to curate that in your head and regurgitate and combine and mix those things together and spit out something that you like and other people resonate with that would resonate with those other pieces. Did so, you listen to my podcast last week? <laughs> I, did. I didn't. And that's I feel what I talked now. about. <laughs> that's what I talked about though is curating that's exactly it yeah. is um, surrounding yourself and right. You're yeah, curating your inputs, whatever it's, you are absorbing, you will eventually, you will be influenced by You it. know how people say like, you're the, the sum of mm-hmm. the five people mm-hmm. you hang out with most. Mm-hmm. It's really like you're the sum of the five artists you consume most. Yeah. It's for me as a musician, if you listen to my stuff versus the five artists that I listen to most, you go, oh, this fits right in with that. It's a little different because we're imperfect mirrors. You can try to be something all you want. You could literally try to replicate your favorite dancer exactly or your mm-hmm. favorite ballet exactly, and you will come up with something different enough that it's unique because it has your own natural, it has your own natural cadence to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens in every art form all of the time. I think there's there's so many times that something you hear that's amazing today and feels new and fresh is actually just someone who dug a little farther back into the influences that they have and came up with something that you you don't feel like you've heard before. So 
I like to think about it this way. If if you're a big fan of some artist or some dancer or some composer or whatever, look at their stuff and then figure out who they looked up to. Mm, mm-hmm. And so for me, there's a band called Manchester Orchestra and I found out this writer looked up to a guy named John K. Sampson. And then you go back to, and you listen to John K. Sampson. They sound not the same at all, but you pick up on the things that the other guy took away. But if you go look at the same artist you might take something different away. Just like mm-hmm. um, Death Cab for Cutie listened to the same guy and took something totally different away. And you can go back even more too. And you can realize like, oh, that guy listened to say Neil Young or something. And right. now you can have this sort of family tree of creativity. And I think if you if you just go back a generation or two past the person that's popular now or that you like now, you might be able to do something that, feels fresh and original and it will be because no one's tried to replicate that person in in decades specifically interesting put it through your your personal filter Mm -hmm. whatever your preference yeah and it's your combination of things too it's it's um the movie arrival if you watch that after watching the movie contact you'll be like oh Mm -hmm. this is 70 percent the movie contact with this director's taste it's totally different and there's other collaborators involved and that makes a difference too but it's it's just curating your influences most of art is curating your influences and using that to say what you need to say so on um a similar line how would you say so considering yourself um as an artist in newly in filmmaking and you've done a lot of studying but how would you say that you differ from other creatives you've seen in film in um in process and in product uh patience i think is the most oh yeah relevant thing it's Mm -hmm. that like knowing that you don't have to do it right now is probably the most important thing there is Mm -hmm. um there's do you feel like there's a lot of impatience in your... Yeah, um, I, I mean, there's so many short films that are really, really bad and people uh, are thinking they're, they're going to make it. And it's mostly because people think that I need to get this thing out. I need to make it right now because mm-hmm. this is... Time's like, a wasted. Time's a wasted, right. And so much of that comes from a place that isn't truly creative. So much of making something great is taking your time and iterating on it mm-hmm. and doing it over and over again, getting the script and revising it and revising it and revising it, do, taking your choreography and revising it and revising it and revising it and then show it to someone else and, and they'll go, well, this part might be a little bit off and you go, okay, let me fix the timing there. And now you've done that a hundred times and you've got this thing that's refined that mm-hmm. you can show to people. And I think so many people rush the creative process that it's detrimental because you you either do that over and over again and you never make something that you truly love or anyone else truly loves or you end up in a place where you get burned out because you're like I'm making this thing and it's it's not ending up very good or people aren't responding to it and you're like maybe I should do something else and really it was probably just that you didn't spend enough time on it you didn't um you didn't realize that patience was the thing that most people didn't have when they were trying to get through the dip mm-hmm. which is a good book Oh, yeah. The Dip is a great book mm-hmm. by Seth that Godin. It's actually... I read that. Yeah. It's short. It's very cute. And it's highly motivational. And it's very good for us ballet dancers, adult ballet dancers, because when you start do when you start to learn something, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, but when you start something as complex and as 
a bigger learning curve is ballet, believe me, you need the advice from that book. So I will put that, I'll link that into our um, show notes. You can Should I give like a short that like, idea of what it is? It's, yeah, sure. Why not? It's really just that when you get to a certain point where it feels like this thing, you're hitting a wall, you're hitting a plateau, you feel like you can't get any better at it. And you're like, how are these people so much better than I am? It's because those people got through this thing called the dip. It's where you, you get to a point where it's, it takes so much more energy to get better or it takes so much more energy to get this thing over the goal line that most people quit. If you get through the point where most people quit, you come out the other side as a rare example. So you can be the... You kind of survived yeah, firing Yeah, it's squad. like survivorship bias <laughs> Yeah, in, in a way. It's it's that like if 90% of people can't get through the, you know, the doctorate or mm-hmm. 90% of people can't get through finishing the script, that last few percent of work that you have to climb through, that you have to um, fight through, that gets you to the other side of that, that puts you in a category that's just a very small percentage of all the people that tried. Yeah, and just the just the consistency and the keep going. We've talked about that before. And I want to say actually Julie from Broche Ballet posted something this week or recently just about um, you, you kind of have to, you have to be okay with being bad in order to like reap the benefits of um, all that hard work and especially for ballet when it is very much about coordination, but it's also about not looking like you're having a hard time. (laughs) You know, eventually I think a lot of adult dancers have a goal of being on stage or performing, doing something like that. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. And that's part of it is it's like, you got to act like everything's okay. You Um, have to be able to extrapolate and see your potential too. Because at the beginning of everything, at the beginning of doing anything, everyone is terrible. And like, you just have this, what feels like naive optimism, which, what feels like, oh, I, I must be like kind of good at this. It's really you just saying, I can see what I'd be good at. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people that get good at things are really just good at extrapolating and knowing that if I got this much better in this time, how much better can I get in 10 years? Yeah, that's really important. I kind of had to learn that this year myself, or I think I finally allowed myself to believe that that applied to me, (laughs) that I'm not like this horrible exception. It's just that I had never tried. And I think I've seen more improvement in my dancing this year than I have ever in my life. I've seen you improve a ton, just just putting in the extra work. You have to. And I have not been perfect. Um, We're getting off a side tangent because I have another question that has to do with something else. But but it is. It's very important to to keep going. So check out that book um, called The Dip. Highly recommend the, the dip. Highly recommend it. It's really short. It's teeny tiny. It's one of those things you should keep a copy of. Oh, and get you. yes, and don't it's get it off the when Kindle. To, when to quit and when to persist. Don't get it off Kindle because I, I'm trying to remember. I think there's some good like illustrations and that might be harder might to be see. Kindle, I don't know. I would get a I would get a hard copy of that one because it's nice to have around. Uh, but anyways, kind of um, touching back on the last question. Um, as a creative individual. Do you believe that you perceive the world differently from other people? And do you think that any unusual thought processes are involved when you create something? Like, do you go to a special place place. (laughs) (laughs) when you are, you know, um, making something? So what was the first part of that question? uh, As a creative individual, do you believe that you perceive the world differently from other people who may not be naturally or may not be practicing creatives? I think most creative people that are that can do it at a decently high level perceive the world differently than the average person i think they are just more sensitive they have more finely tuned antennas to the world around them (laughs) and they take things in and they filter things a little bit differently than the average person would and that's the part that seems amazing to the people that haven't tried to be creative i think most people are creative i think that the um 
the ability to to turn that into making something that resonates is is really just tuning yourself into the right things and filtering them down to something that makes sense and also skill development over time. So and mm-hmm. sorry, the second part of your question was? Um, do you think that any unusual thought processes are involved when you create something? I don't think any part of my thought processes are usual <laughs> or typical at all. And I'm learning more about this right now. Fair enough. Um, let's see. So where I go when I create, where do you think I go when I create? You, where do I think that you things. go? Well, the headphones go on. Usually he's got at least two pair of headphones. Um, oh, yeah. Huge, huge life hack if you're sensitive to sounds around you is take your AirPods and flip them upside down, putting them in opposite ears, and then get some like gun range earmuffs to put over them. <laughs> and then you are in your own world and no one can... I mean, if the house you was burning down, I'd focus. have to come and like slap them across the face and be like, get out of the house, <laughs> and you it's can burning just down. deep focus into whatever it is you need to do. And um, that's one thing that is, I think, super underrated. And read the book Deep Work, if you get a chance, by Cal Newport. One thing that's super underrated is having time and having a space to yourself to create, to have just consecutive hours to yourself, if not days, depending what you're working on, to be your own filter and not worry what other people around you are thinking or be distracted by other people when you're in the middle of a thought. It's these deep focused efforts that, especially when you're by yourself, that make things that are unique and um, you, it, it allows you to get into flow, especially. And once you're in flow, then you can do all kinds of things that you didn't think you were capable of. Do you have any suggestions for how to, because um, a a good percentage of my listeners have um, children or dogs or um, roommates, spouses, people that bother you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, How would you, what would you suggest to them to um, kind of carve that out to make that happen aside from headphones? The headphone things help Mm -hmm. things. The headphone thing helps a lot. Because I'm always bothering you, and we do have a tropical bear that lives in the house, and yeah. he has his own. <laughs> he runs the roost. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have to schedule a vacation to go and do it, do that. I've I've made a bunch of songs by just taking my stuff from my studio and moving it to a different place, and where there's no one there for the weekend, borrowing a friend's house, or um, if your parents are out of town, or whatever it is. Use that space to isolate yourself and work on something. And I'm sure the same applies to choreography. And if you need to mm-hmm. rent a, you know, a theater, or if you need to rent a dance space, studio, yeah. a studio, do that. I think that's something I want to do more of myself at the moment is just get more time alone to be creative. However you can do that. It's, there's no rules. It's Is there a particular environment besides being like a quiet, peaceful, like is that you could find wherever, but would you say... Like for me, I love to choreograph when I am on the train mm. to dance, which well, is a very short train ride. I like I like something to be happening in front of my eyes and I like to be in an environment that maybe has noise, but it's not, I can't pick someone's voice out, like sitting in a coffee shop or, um, or even walking. I've solved yeah. a lot of um, choreographic problems kind of just like i was just gonna around. say it doesn't have to be a um it doesn't have to be a, like a quiet isolated space some mm-hmm. people like noise it's just my me in particular i like to be in a quiet space but yep. yeah like you said on the train going for walks is huge plenty of authors will write books in coffee shops that are that are noisy and that stimulates their creative imagination the important thing is that those people aren't being interrupted 
So when you're on the train and you're thinking of the thing that you're thinking of, mm-hmm. you're not, someone's not tapping you on the shoulder. No. And the same goes for when you're out for a walk. I mean, there's tons of evidence that walking is great for creativity and most people have their best ideas while they're out for a walk. I will say the same for songwriting. You, you sit inside and you work on something and then you're like, I'm kind of stuck. I'm going to go for a walk. Mm-hmm. And then halfway through the walk, you're like sprinting home to try to like record uh-huh. something that you, you figured out. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's figuring out what works for you. There's nothing prescriptive about it. It's finding your process. Would you say that does too much information or too many tools cause your creativity to suffer or fail? Yes. Mm. That's all I have to say about that. Okay. <laughs> I, I actually went through pretty much everything I ever made. Um, I and like sort of did like a post-mortem of all the things I'd, I'd made uh, over the last decade. Ooh, and I went through everything I did and I had a journal out and I started typing like as I was listening to what I did, what, what my life was like at that time and what contributed to this thing being what I now perceive as good or bad. And when I had more tools and more um complexity around a process i felt that the art form suffered the art suffered and when i had more simplicity around the process when i had less tools when i you know had more isolation or when i just had a simpler process i I felt like the art resonated more with me now Hmm. but would you say that i wonder like a simple process doesn't necessarily have to be i think it's relative i think it's relative because Someone could be, let's say, a painter. Mm-hmm. And to somebody who is not a painter, perhaps an entire palette and limitless choice in colors would be very overwhelming. And simplicity to them could be just a line drawing with a pencil mm-hmm. or an ink drawing with a pen. But to an artist who is a, a, you know, an oil painter, they can take that full range of their tools, you know, using... Um, you know, using a knife to create texture, using, you know, different types of, of, of colors, of other things. I mean, they can have infinite tools. And for them, that feels simple because it's mm-hmm. it, they're used to using those things. Everyone has a different threshold do for the simplicity that, that they need. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but I think that... But do you think given more time with those tools you feel overwhelmed by, would you then consider that to be simplicity? I'm not sure. I think that the most important thing is that constraints are in place Mm -hmm. um i think with any art form that this is in my observation i'm sure other people have different opinions but in any art form having constraints usually causes you to be more creative so in my art form when i have less uh tools less microphones less guitars like uh this is uh an artist that just has two microphones and and two guitars and they make an album that's iconic versus someone that has a studio full of tools and every instrument and every producer and everything Mm -hmm. at their disposal in the world and they make something that's not um, resonating with people. It's because you get distracted Mm -hmm. and you're not forced to be creative with what you have. It's Mm -hmm. the Billie Eilish album, the first album that came out. They had a bedroom, they had a microphone, they had a, uh, a setup, basically the same thing we're using now to record this podcast. Very simple. And, um, very few instruments and they took that and they made this iconic thing that took over the world and was the most Mm -hmm. original sound we'd heard in Mm -hmm. a decade or two and then the next album came out and he had a studio full of tools and every resource in the world and i don't think people resonated with it nearly as much and i think that is the quote-unquote sophomore slump that happens where people's second movie or people's second Mm -hmm. album or maybe second ballet or whatever it is 
they get more resources and they struggle because they're not confined by these limitations that remove choice, which is like shown to give you energy. Mm -hmm. Like the more choices you have, the more fatigued you're going to get. So having less choices gives you energy. And I think it forces you to be creative. Just giving yourself any rule. If you, if you say, if you give yourself like a rule for a, a ballet that you're going to, um, mm-hmm. that you're going to choreograph. I, I deal with that all of the time. A lot of times it has to do with the skills of the dancers that you're working with. That's your paint. Yeah. You can't give sure. somebody a step that they cannot physically perform. Mm-hmm. So like no one's going to be giving Sasha a cartwheel because mm-hmm. Sasha can't cartwheel. So. And you might be thinking, oh, no, I have these limitations. What you should be thinking is, yes, I never. have these limitations. Yeah. It never crosses my mind to go, oh, I wish that I could have better dancers. No. Instead, I, I ride the line of what can I get them to attempt to, so that they can see that they can do something that's a little more advanced, but that still is going to... Um, mm-hmm you know, look appropriate and, um, be performed successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely, it's, it's fun. I like that actually. It's, it's like having uh if you don't have the most talented dancers, it's, it's not much different than being a painter with a palette where you don't have loud or neon colors. You just mm-hmm. have these say more muted colors, but you can still do something incredibly beautiful yeah. with, uh, something that if it's by itself is less expressive, but in combination with other things and used in the right way is incredibly expressive. Do you think that monetary rewards can be compatible with creativity in general? Are monetary rewards relevant to your own work? Typically when you're rewarded for something that's and it's not intrinsic, say with money or mm-hmm. with praise, yeah. that takes away from your motivation to actually do something. And I've experienced this myself and I've seen it in other people. Mm-hmm. And you have to be very careful to make sure that you only reward yourself for doing the process, for doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And when you start to worry about, is this monetary, monetarily rewarding me? Is this getting me likes? Is this getting me followers? Whatever it is, mm-hmm. you will taint the process and you will burn out because it's not pushing you to keep going. Do you think that society now is ruining artists and potentially new artists because of the way that we use social media to show everything and everything that we do? 100%. I think mm-hmm. as an artist before social media and then while on social media, I was a much better artist before it. I think I see people on social media that would probably be better artists without it. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of great artists that aren't on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that it's a bad thing. It's that you need to figure out what headspace you need to be in so that that doesn't affect you as much. There, I know of um, podcasters that will have their... Um, assistant post everything that they post so they can't see how many likes it gets. Mm. I know of, yeah, it's like having a manager deal with all your money stuff so that you don't relate to that. You just focus on the art. There's there's a million ways to, to do it and everyone's different. But I do think it's really important to try to get as much of the reward as possible from patting yourself on the back for doing the thing and just for intrinsically like, hey, I pushed through that barrier. Like that's the reward. Would you say then you mentioned earlier that you are definitely intrinsically motivated for the most part would you say then that the process of making art is the important thing to you and not the product or what, how would you weight those things yeah the percentages it's it's 95.5 it's mm. when i'm making something and i, I like it it's 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 95 that i did it because i was enjoying making it or even if i wasn't enjoying making it it was like that pride that you get from pushing through a block Mm-hmm. Like, cause sometimes making something sucks. Yep. Like sometimes I'll do an edit and it, it freaking sucks. Like it's bashing your face into the desk until something happens that you like and that makes you feel something. And then you get through that part of it and you're like, oh, 
I like this. I'm glad I did that. It's a lot of writers describe writing as this. It's like, it's a slog, but I love it. It's like that point where you get to, you get through something and, and you're proud of it can also be a, a, a way to motivate yourself. So some people like being in the middle of the writing part and some people like having gotten through the writing part, but they're both valid ways to motivate yourself. Whereas if you say, hey, I'll give you $100 to write this, they might freeze. Would you say then that do you get that that um, kind of letdown that people will once they've finished a project or something you've been like long-term working on? Like maybe you can no, say... No, it's relief every time. Really? To be done with something. <laughs> what, oh, about, yeah. what about with like music and that kind of a thing? Oh, same thing, yeah. Do you ever just miss like doing that thing or you're like you, you close the door on it and you're done and you're good? No, I... You don't, you don't like have a, like um, regret about it. I mean, if there's regrets, it's that, oh, I could have made that better in some way but like not you hear like because, um, because oh, there's it's a, over with you know? because you're inevitably going to get better at something in the future mm-hmm. you look back at it and you go oh i should have done this mm-hmm. and that's always going to happen and you mm-hmm. need to be able to finish something um and put it away and 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 just know that it's going to be the case but sorry say your question again uh do you feel like emotionally let like a letdown after no, the no, end of a project no no like postpartum depression no. or anything like that no <laughs> i think that it's it's usually a huge either relief or excitement to be done like it's really usually fun if you're doing something well it's usually really fun to show pe- show it to people yeah yeah i would agree i just kind of went through that with my nutcracker thing where i mean it's over in a blink of an eye it's 3 minutes and 20 seconds and then you're like in Emmanuel, we, yeah. Yeah, that's my dance partner Emmanuel. um we look at each other afterwards we're like oh it's over now because <laughs> yeah. you know you you stress about this thing and it becomes very much like you're so involved in it because it's your body like it's you it, it was so me and you you just kind of get wrapped up in it and, then, and all that work that went into it and it's over mm-hmm. like that it's like um when the when uh, people clap and then you're done <laughs> yeah it's like when the first astronauts orbited around the moon they're yeah. like they go wow is is you know is that all there is yep you know isn't that fascinating yeah, it's, it's amazing just, like, how you can acclimate to anything something about the process like stimulates you so much more than i think always till the end it's a little mm-hmm. different when you're doing like when you're performing because even for you how many times did, when you were a musician how many times did you perform multiple nights in a row like the same thing did you ever do a multi-show yeah, run for sure and it's like i think that is fun because then the the performance itself becomes part of the process and that's so cool because you finally get to the part that's the fun part which is the performing and you're in your costume or whatever and then you get another night and then you get another night and then you have a couple days off and then you do it all again and it's like that part is the i think the best part of dance process for me is it's like because i actually do really enjoy class now um i used to just like hate class <laughs> i would go to class just so we could get to grand allegro because that's the best part and it also happens to be the end so um but i love that process of it but it is a it is a huge a huge sad um ending um of any show when you have a, such a long run because you kind of get used to then living in that little realm and and especially for you know not only for adult dancers but even for kids like you you kind of have like one winter show probably nutcracker and then maybe a spring show or like a recital um and you might do that a couple of nights or maybe three you know two nights in a matinee and then you're like oh my gosh i've been working on this for an entire year and and it's over and it was you know you blink and you're trying to enjoy it but yeah i always get a little bit I like get misty eyed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And then what would be, what would you consider, this is kind of a tricky question, I think. What's your standard for evaluating your own creative work and the works of other people? What are you looking for? Are you using only your own taste? Like what what leads you to choose something to study? Yeah, I mean, think about any art that you've ever gotten obsessed with. It's mm-hmm. usually something that you just like, it either like wrecked you or excited you or, <laughs> yeah. you know, like the, some of my favorite movies just like absolutely destroyed me. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I have to figure out how that happened. Uh-huh. And you right. want to you want to dissect that. Right. Yeah, so there's there's some like the movie Manchester by the Sea will like just destroy you. But I refuse also, to watch this movie. I don't like, <laughs> I don't like sad movies. <laughs> but you, you can go back and you can you can figure out what they did and how they did it. And you can use those little bits to be able to communicate your emotions and whatever you're making and that is totally cross-platform cross-art form it's it's just so much of what applies to one thing will apply to something else it's, it's all these concepts that are are useful elsewhere it's it's like relativity it's when um something that's dark follows something that's light mm-hmm. when, when something that's sad follows something that's happy when when you have things that contrast when something like compression expansion like Frank Lloyd Wright you've got this threshold for you you set the threshold for human perception and then you change it and going back and forth between those things is super important in any art form and you can learn that by studying the one thing that excites you and is you're obsessed with or you can learn that by studying art in general I think it's more fun to pick the thing that excites you and, and look at that what skills that you learned either in school or in your music experience do you pull into filmmaking? Other, I mean, I think there's some that are really obvious, like, um, you know, the way that some of your software functions mm-hmm. in a similar manner. But what what about like... Like linear um, timelines and stuff Yeah, like correct. Right. Like some things are, are really um, transferable. But what, what's, you know, is there anything that's... What I find that's funny is the same muscles that... To, the same muscles that make you good at uh, writing or the same muscles that make you good as a musician happen to be the same muscles that make you good at making movies or editing. Or mm-hmm. it, I feel like sometimes I'm good at like deciding or seeing if a dancer is emoting and like mm-hmm. they're expressing themselves or if they're just going through the motions. It's like these, the same tool that you use in one art form is the same thing that gets you through another. And that's that's really like... Do you think that's taste? It's what emotional. Would you call it? It's like an emotional filter. Do you it's, think it's like empathy? Uh, maybe. It's it's being able to make a very small change. And then after you make that very small change, you say, how does this make me feel now? Mm. So um, if I take an, an edit that I'm working on and I move the cut one frame over, because I've been doing it for a while, I can feel the difference mm-hmm. of how that affects me emotionally. And sometimes that can be comedic timing. Sometimes that can be, you know, like it's just scarier that way or it's um, more fun that way or whatever it is. And the same thing applies to, I feel, everything. If if you are um, rushing through a part that you're dancing intentionally or Mm -hmm. if you're dragging through something intentionally and, and giving it suspense, it's this feeling that you get when you make a very small change and tuning yourself in with that. It's It's almost meditative where you have to be noticing something very small and its effect on you i think that um that's kind of like the you know you've got the base layer cake and then you've got the frosting on the cake and then you've got like maybe some decorations and then you have like the box that the cake is in and i think like the details are is the crumb of the cake the right density (laughs) and i think that's the thing that i think you're good at and i think that i'm good at is 
is telling when something is like off, yeah. when something is just a little bit off. And it's also yeah. when you're by yourself and you feel something that you see something that makes you feel different if mm -hmm. it's a very small change you just make the change and you keep going right. whereas if you have to get someone else to make a change that's an entirely yeah. different process but that's the iteration that you were talking about is it's like but sometimes but in dance like we're iterating on bodies and the bodies mm -hmm. don't always want to do what you ask them to or maybe the person just doesn't know what you mean and mm -hmm. um but those communication yeah the communication is is really was really um yeah difficult do you, do you feel that in dance it's really about doing the basics, the simple things, the fundamentals extremely well? Yes. Do you think that's the most important thing? I do because, you know, what my coach says, Bally with Isabella, Isabella, if you're listening, um, I'll link her. <laughs> She's wonderful. Um, but she says something to the effect of um, you have to have mastery of the basics so then you can let them go and just dance. Mm -hmm. So that by the time you're on stage, you are not thinking, you know, I need to, okay, I PK on my left leg and now I have to roll through my toes and bring my heel forward, get my knee over my, over, you know, uh, you're not thinking of all those little things that you're going to think of in class. And so the idea is you spend class working on the fundamentals so that when you get on the stage, you're thinking, okay, I am this character. I am, you know, Aurora. And how would Aurora act? Aurora is a 16-year-old at her birthday party. What does that mean? Like, you, you can focus on the artist, artistic yeah. parts of it and no there's, longer those basics. There's this amazing drummer that he's the one that gets the call when uh, a drummer in a band breaks their arm. They got to play for 80,000 people. And uh, he, he's the one that gets the call that says, okay, you've got, you know, a week to rehearse this and then we're going on stage at, at Wembley or the United Center, whatever it is. And he talks a, a ton about the headspace you need to be in to be able mm. to do that and to be able to perform at a high level. And um, he recommends the book, The Inner Game of Tennis, which is a tennis book that is great for anyone that's in the performing arts. And it's about just, just mindset and the space you need to be in. He, he says that if I'm thinking about the next beat, the next thing that I'm going to do, uh, on the drums, then I'm going to screw myself up. If I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow, <laughs> then I'm going to be okay. And mm -hmm. it's it's getting to the point where you know the thing cold. You're relying on your training. You're relying on your you training. You trust your training. And yeah. And you're just not getting in your own way. Yeah. I can imagine, I think of film as like, every time you hear somebody talk about a film production and it's their behind the scenes or whatever, they're like, we've been shooting this for five years or whatever. Like it is the longest long game, I think, of any art. I mean, even you can, even some full length, you know, um, what do you call it? Evening length dance works or theater performances. This, those are turned around so fast. A lot of the times because the company or the group already knows it basically like Nutcracker. Nutcracker gets turned around in weeks because, or, you know, in, you know, a month or less because everyone's already done it and they've done it a thousand times and they've been doing the same version for, you know, however many years. And so, um, but for film, it is like, it's such a it's such a long time that you, you when you to get from the planning stages to the thing that you see in the theater and to be able to like I I could imagine just to keep motivated just to keep working on a project like that for years at a time because I don't think I've ever made anything I don't think I've ever worked on anything that long well, like a, think an about, actual product if you think about dance you you choreograph the dance and then the same thing you choreograph goes on stage and that's yes. the thing well, whereas the time, yeah. a film is made three times you have to write the right. film and then you have to record and make the film live on set 
and then you have to edit the film and every time you do that the thing has gone through an iteration and so mm -hmm. the first part of that process can take a couple of years the middle part of that process can take anywhere from you know 30 days to a year or whatever mm -hmm. and then you've got the the post-production process which will take a year or two depending on the thing that you're doing so you've got this thing that's spanning you know three years five years depends what you're doing and most art forms don't require you to think on that long-term timeline it is a huge huge timeline. i mean probably paintings and i'm talking about paintings from like i mean like classic works of art would take years that would take years, yeah. you know, just to, to do one singular oil painting, you know, for five, 10, 15, you know, I don't know. I'm not an art history buff, but, um, but I'm just thinking of like the type of, you know, if you're somebody who's the director of the film, which is the person who gets to, you know, kind of minus the people who are, you know, paying for everything, <laughs> but that, that the buck stops with that person, mm -hmm. right? Someone has to be coordinating and keeping that vision along. So, so to keep the same vision for a thing, you to keep consistent. It's so that way, job. right. To be able to do that, I think is just like, that is, it's very cool. And I've directed a few things myself in theater. Um, and what an undertaking. And I did that for a few months, you know, that was like a few months of a, of a project. And, you know, yeah, generally it did turn out exactly how I envisioned because my realm of, uh, you know, people working with me and under me was very small. But um, being able to, like, trust yourself and and trust your training as a, a filmmaker because you have to believe that you're making good choices. And if you're second-guessing yourself all along, you're probably ending up with some kind of, like, weird mush at the end. I yeah. mean, obviously, you have to take advice from the people who are experts in your, you know, who you have selected as your team, like somebody, you know, someone who's going to be a lighting expert and someone who's a set, you know, design expert. Like, those are the people you have to listen to. Yeah. But you have to, like, have this supreme confidence to just keep saying no to this, no to that, to like, you know, to maybe really good ideas. They might be really good ideas, but if they don't fit with the, you know, the feeling of your movie or your project, you have to keep saying no. And, and like, you, that's got to be scary. And when you don't know, you have to pretend huh. like you know, because everyone's <laughs> following this fearless leader. Right. And, and if as all soon of a sudden as you you're shaking confused, in your boots, <laughs> you're not inspiring confidence in everyone. So mm -hmm. there's, there's something too when you're in charge. There's um, when you don't know, you still have to act like you know, and that can seem disingenuous, but it's actually helping the product mm -hmm. because if you lose, if you lose steam, if you lose the, um, if you lose the morale, mm -hmm. uh, either in a studio or on a set, then you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that in an episode. I forget which one, but just like fake it till you make it. And some people don't mm -hmm. like that saying because... I, I don't like that because authenticity is super important to me. But then you, you they, start to well, think about it. And mm -hmm. if you have self-doubts, you're probably placing yourself at a level that's a level or two below the level you're actually at. Mm -hmm. If you have imposter syndrome, you're probably thinking that you're slightly worse than you actually are. So to quote unquote fake it till you make it, you're probably just kind of propping yourself up to the level you're actually mm -hmm. at. Mm -hmm. You can get a long way with the confidence to lead, lead people even if you don't have the skill set to back it up True. and so if you have the skill set giving yourself that confidence is is such an advantage and i've seen this in in film as i've as i've gotten into it there's just like it's like my knowledge from all the studying that i do might be more than this the this one person that i'm working with but that person's ability to be confident in what they're saying whether i i agree with it or not is what's gotten them where they are it's 
so much of what you do is so much of where you get with what you do is the confidence. And that's something I've hugely struggled with throughout Mm -hmm. my uh, careers. Mm -hmm. Okay. We are now to the concluding section of this interview, which is, I'm going to ask you your favorites. We're going to do some favorite things. Okay. So you're going to go quickly as you can. Favorite podcast. Oh, that's tough. Can I say like three? Sure. Um, the Knowledge Project with Shane, from Shane Parrish, um, the Tim Ferriss Show, that one, just go back and find anyone related to whatever field you're in. And, and <laughs> Very comprehensive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's really just top performers in any field. And then Huberman Podcast, mm-hmm. Huberman Lab. Love Dr. Huberman. Favorite book? Some, 40 Tales from the Afterlife. Favorite film? Gladiator. Favorite band? Favorite band, Manchester Orchestra. Favorite song? That's probably Call Me Maybe. It's, it's actually Call Me Maybe. <laughs> that is definitely your favorite song. I'm not saying that I to be funny. I didn't need to ask you that. I knew that already. Yeah. Gognum Style tried to take it over, but then Call Me Maybe, like, over time, pro- proved out to be the better. <laughs> okay. The better favorite song. favorite color? Uh, olive green. Favorite food? Uh, my favorite food? Vanilla ice cream. Why did you act like you needed to think about that one? Because my stock answer as a kid was ravioli. Oh, interesting. And so whenever someone asks me what my favorite food is, which is rarely, uh-huh. <laughs> it rarely happens when you're adult, but <laughs> when you're a kid, it was ravioli, and now it's definitely vanilla ice cream. Definitely vanilla ice cream. Yeah. Okay. Favorite animal? Spitfire. Um, Spitfire is your favorite animal. No. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> um Right now he is because he's being quiet. Mm -hmm. My favorite animal is probably a capybara. Favorite store or brand? Just any mini travel section, like little soaps and and deodorants and things. We spend so much time in the miniature section. Any miniature section. You got to hit the mini section. If I have to pick a full store, I'd go Fjall Raven because I'm obsessed with backpacks. Oh, yeah. Uh, Favorite emoji? (laughs) Should I say like the... The prayer hands thank you emoji where you're not sure what it is. but Yeah, I think it's actually like a high five. Is it really? Yes. It's not But a everyone uses it as prayer hands. You? No, I think I read that somewhere like on it's BuzzFeed. It's a high five? Yeah, I think it's a high five. Oh, now it's my favorite. I'm sorry. Absolutely. I know that confusing. and I still use it as prayer no, hands. No, mine's probably the shifty eyes. I like the shifty eyes. Which one is that one? The, oh, the like the smirky like. Just put it in the show notes like okay. five shifty eyes in a row. And shifty know what eyes? Doing. It's the literally you're like the, have to show me. the oval shaped high tall eyes and yeah. the eyes are looking to the left or the right oh it's just eyes yeah, it's not like, the face oh i gotcha i got gotcha. like when you say something yeah, snarky yeah, yeah, and you like, drop mm-hmm. some shifty eyes in there yeah oh okay i see yeah that's a good one uh and lastly uh favorite app oh man can i just like rifle some off i feel like i wrote this down sure give me a sec all right day one for journaling uh dynalist because it has infinitely nesting basically bullet points for notes and lists column for meditation Chat GPT for learning and just trying to understand AI. Overcast for podcasts. And then Uber for getting around after you sold your car. <laughs> nice. Okay. And then the, um, oh, I forgot. Oh. <gasps> I forgot my favorite section. Okay. There's two more. Oh, I no. lied. Okay. Okay. I'm so sorry. Okay. Continue. We're, we're, okay. This is going to be fun. Oh my God. I totally forgot about this. Okay. I got to go back because I have the secret part of my LSB5 mm-hmm. notes. That I hid from you. I feel like at this point we need to say, if you're still listening. If uh, you're still listening. Yeah. Expect a 100% well, we're, off coupon we're gonna, code to whatever product she sells. We're going to chop. We're going to chop it up. Um, okay. So we better save that for the 
grand finale. So here's just a quick this or that. Okay. Bananas or avocados? Bananas. Emails or phone calls? Oh, I hate them both. <laughs> I know. I hate them both so That's much. That's why I picked them. Um, <laughs> phone calls. Viola or violin? Cello. No. Cello. That's not how this works. Uh, violin. <laughs> Day or night? Night. Rats or iguanas? Iguanas. <laughs> Turning or jumping? Jumping. Tennis or hockey? Right now, tennis. Raw or cooked vegetables? What's the vegetable? It doesn't matter. Cooked. <laughs> the nutcracker or swan lake? Swan lake. Short or long tutus? Long. Point shoes or flat shoes? Point shoes. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> I should have had more of that. That's the end of it. Give me three more. Three I'll put more? you on the spot. Go. I don't have any These more. These are fun. You can't just stop now. <laughs> okay. I can't think of any more. <laughs> you need to not cut out this enormous silence that has just taken place. <laughs> oh my God. I'm just looking around the room desperate for something else to say. Um, okay. Sweatpants or sweat shorts? Sweatpants. Ooh. I feel like you should be asking me some, but it's, I'm interviewing you. No, don't give me work. Okay. <laughs> I already worked today. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's do my on. last thing. Go ahead. I have to tell you something about Matt is that he has this uncanny ability to estimate things. And I mean, estimate to like, there's, there would be no reason why he knows any of this. It would be something he'd never heard of before. And he'll get it within a margin of, I don't even know the error. Like, Usually it's like five or 10%. Okay. Five or 10%. And it's, it's so dumb. And it's like to the point where we just give him things to estimate for fun. So anyways, I'm going to play Matt the entire New York City ballet snow scene, which is about six minutes long. And um, the snow in the snow scene, the snowflakes are made with flame retardant paper. And I am going to ask him to estimate the weight in pounds of fake paper snow that is dumped on the stage each night. If he wishes, he will be allowed to Google only the weight of various papers, which I will supervise. And then he is also allowed to talk through his process as he decides to come up with his answer. And maybe we'll dive him, I'm not sure. But I'm going to play him this video, and then he's going to estimate for us and then we will see how close he is to the correct answer. Are you ready? No. <laughs> but yeah, let's do it. Okay. Okay, pause. Pausing. Okay, so he just finished watching. Again, that's the six-minute long version of the New York City Ballet Nutcracker with the snow. And he's now going to estimate for us in pounds how much snow falls every night on the Nutcracker snow scene. Okay, so at first I was kind of imagining like people shoveling this up into a pile and trying to imagine how much that would weigh. And then towards mm -hmm. the end of it, I started imagining like my dad used to have these reams of paper, like the boxes of paper in his yeah. office. And like I was looking it up those way about 20 pounds and I could just kind of feel like this could be totally fucking wrong. So <laughs> this could be totally wrong, but <laughs> I could feel like there was a front left stage one of those boxes front right another one and then the back part of the stage like most of the snow was on the back wall i would say there's two back there left and right so i'm gonna say four boxes of paper 80 pounds Ooh, my way off you're a little above i'm above okay so i was worried i'd be above a little bit high you yeah i'm gonna try and 
Yeah, if Guess I had number two. Yeah, if I had to reconcile that, it'd be like forty-five pounds. Okay, all right. What is it? Fifty. Really? Fifty pounds a night. I was in the ballpark. You were in the ballpark. You were. Yeah, yeah. It's tough to see. Plus, he was he was watching on a little tiny phone, and they kind of zoom in and out. So, um, yeah. So thank you everybody for listening. Um, if you haven't already, please follow me at the Longshot Ballerina on Instagram. Um, and check out the podcast. I usually have an episode out every Thursday unless there's something crazy going on and then I'll let you know if we're skipping a week. Um, catch up on the episodes from the last couple of weeks. Last week was a short one, only about 10 minutes. So I'm making it up this week with a long one. <laughs> and yeah, have a great night, day, wherever you are and we'll talk soon. Bye. <laughs>